Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and on this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond, our guest is writer, teacher, and MDiv student, Amy Peterson. In our conversation, Amy shares what inspired her to write her latest book, Where Goodness Still Grows, Reclaiming Virtue in an Age of Hypocrisy. And I have to say, this is one of the best books that I've read so far in 2020, in which Amy offers her thoughts about how she has reimagined a variety of virtues, including modesty, purity, authenticity, love, and hope. We also don't shy away in our conversation from discussing thoughts on the intersection of evangelical culture and politics, as well as the way that the traditional evangelical view of modesty has caused women not only to hide their bodies, but their talents and gifts as well. Amy is currently a postulant for ordination in the Episcopal Church, and I so appreciated this conversation with her about her own process to reclaim these virtues, and I hope that you'll find it meaningful as well. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for being a guest on the podcast. Can you share a little bit about your faith journey and kind of geographically where you grew up and how that has shaped you? Yeah, of course. And thank you so much for having me on. I grew up in conservative evangelical churches in the South, mostly in San Antonio, Texas, and in Little Rock, Arkansas. My dad worked in Christian radio and in marriage and family ministries. And I was homeschooled. I'm the oldest of five kids. And I was homeschooled until fifth grade. And we had, we were just very rooted in the local church. That was a big part of our practice. There was a lot of Bible memorization, a lot of hymns at home, and also a lot of love of good literature. Those were all sort of hallmarks of my childhood, I think. And then after college, I moved to Southeast Asia and taught English as a second language in universities there for two years. And I had some really kind of shattering experiences. The whole story is in my first book, Dangerous Territory, but I had some really shattering faith experiences there as I witnessed persecution. And that was sort of when I think my faith became more of an adult faith once I had had my first dark night of the soul, right? I had felt close to God all through my teenage years and had volunteered in church as a youth group leader when I was in high school and then when I was in college, continuing to volunteer in church. And and God had always seemed to answer my prayers. And then I went to Southeast Asia and God absconded and was silent for a little while. And so sort of in the wake of that, I got quieter about my faith for a while, not not really because I was doubting it, but I started to see how wide the world was, how differently people on the other side of the world experienced life and experienced God. And I saw how much I needed to listen rather than talk. And so that kind of began a process of, I don't really love the language of deconstruction, Okay, um, sure. Because I still feel pretty <laughs> rooted in like the good soil that I grew up in, but I think I grew from there into new places. Maybe an agricultural mm-hmm. metaphor is better. 
So as part of that sort of rethinking and growing in my faith, I joined an Episcopal church. So for the last 10 years or so, I've been in the Episcopal church, which incidentally, a church that really ministered to me when I was living in Cambodia was an Anglican church. Hmm. And a lot of my favorite writers had been Anglican writers. So it was sort of a natural fit for my personality. But also I've just found a lot of joy and growth and flourishing in the Episcopal Church. And right now I'm actually on track to become ordained in that church. And so I'm, I'm now living in North Carolina and studying at Duke Divinity School. Nice. And I appreciate sort of that, maybe it's discomfort with the phrase deconstructing. I've felt some similar tension about that word, and I wasn't exactly sure what that was for me. And so thinking about your metaphor of more agricultural, the roots still matter. So it's not like you're uprooting the whole thing. Well, in the title of your book, and we'll get to that, is Reclaiming Virtue. You use the word reimagining throughout the book as well, I think. And I've appreciated that language of reimagining the faith versus deconstructing, where you're not tearing it all down and restarting. You're seeing it differently, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I like to avoid violent metaphors. In general. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so yeah, maybe there are some things that need to be torn down, but I find myself far more interested in building bridges out nice. maybe. Yeah. Cool. So now you're in North Carolina And in the book, you talk about Indiana, and I was a bit curious about that because I lived in Indiana for about 10 years. When did you move to North Carolina? What were you doing in Indiana? Yeah. All sorts of questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So... So after college, I moved to Southeast Asia for two years, and I also at that time enrolled in a master's degree in intercultural studies and missions through Wheaton College. And so I did that program sort of as a distance program. I would take intensive classes in January in Thailand and then in July back at Wheaton. And that program was really invaluable for me in helping me live in another culture and learn how to communicate effectively within another culture. So after two years in Southeast Asia and finishing that degree, I, I've moved around so much, but I was in California for a little bit and then back in Arkansas for a year and then moved out to Seattle for three years with my husband, Jack, whom I met in Southeast Asia. Okay. We sort of hopped from Southeast Asia to California to Arkansas and to Seattle. And in all of those places, I was teaching in one way or or another, teaching English as a second language, and then teaching high school, some Bible classes and some literature classes. And then my husband, when we moved to Seattle, he did a master's degree at the University of Washington there in teaching English to speakers of other languages. And we ran a house for international students, sort of a an intentional community for international students in Seattle for three years while he was doing that degree. We lived in community with seven or eight international students at a time in a big house in the university district. And that was a real joy and and a way for me to, I felt, give back to these students some of the hospitality that I had received Mm -hmm. when I was living in Southeast Asia. So when my husband finished his master's degree, he was applying for jobs all over and ended up taking a job at Taylor University, which is in rural Indiana. It sure is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
I had never been there until we went for him to interview for the job and I had never lived in a small town, but it was a really great job. He started off as the director of curriculum for their ESL and TESOL programs and ended up being chair of the department. So we moved to Indiana from Seattle and we lived there for nine years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And while we were there, I started adjuncting at the university. So I taught some ESL classes and then then I started writing more. And so I was mm. pursuing the vocation of writing, which was something I'd felt drawn to since I was a child, but had sort of left on the back burner since I got married. So I started writing. I was in this online writing group of six women and we exchanged work every couple of weeks. And I started publishing a little more. And then I started working on my first book, Dangerous Territory, which is a memoir about the two years I spent as a missionary and also does some work critiquing the language that we use in the Western church to talk about missions. Okay. And as I finished that book, I realized I felt like I'd kind of gotten to the end of my ability with writing and I needed more instruction. I needed help. And also I thought if we're going to be in academic circumstances forever, mm-hmm. I would like to be qualified to teach creative writing, mm-hmm. not just English as a second language. So I started an MFA at that time and I did an MFA, also kind of a distance program with Seattle Pacific University. I went to residencies twice a year and then did correspondence work. So I got my MFA during those years when we were in Indiana and then I started working on this book. And so I was teaching creative writing then at Taylor for a little bit. And I was also working with the honors program. I was the assistant director of honors programming. So it was a wonderful job. I got to help book speakers for events and I got to teach these honors colloquium classes, which were small classes where we would read and discuss together. And I loved a lot of that so much. But things were kind of changing in the culture. And I was also kind of finding myself running up against this. I don't know how to describe it, but as a professor, you can interact with students in a number of ways. And Mm -hmm. to be clear, I wasn't a professor. I was just an adjunct instructor. But as an instructor, you, you can interact with students in a number of ways. But I started having students coming to me pretty personal confessions and questions, asking for advice and It felt like they were coming to me as if I were a pastoral figure, Mm. not an academic professor. Yeah, you share some stories in your book about some of those interactions with students. Yeah, really meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. But I started to feel like when I was able to have those conversations with students, I was doing something that I had been created to do. It felt really right and really life-giving. And at the same time, I was teaching a colloquium where we were looking at some Bible stories every week. And when I was able to spark students' interest in the Bible, and these are, you know, Christian college students, they know these stories. They know them very well. And so when I was able to help them sort of reinvigorate their curiosity and their interest and their love for scripture, that felt deeply meaningful to me. And so a number of things sort of coalesced, and that was when I started to discern a call to vocational ministry to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church. And so I applied to Duke Divinity, and one thing led to another, and here we are in Durham. 
Nice. And in the midst of a pandemic, no less. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thankfully, we we were here for oh, nine months before the pandemic started. Okay. So <laughs> there's enough time to like at least establish some sense of community before we all started living in our houses. Right. right. Never leaving. <laughs> so some settling in before you had to totally settle in. Right. Yeah. And so not too long before the pandemic, also, you launched the book that we mentioned earlier, Where Goodness Still Grows, Reclaiming Virtue in an Age of Hypocrisy. You mentioned the time getting your MFA and beginning to work on this book. Can you share a little bit about what led you to write this specific book? Yeah. I think that what led me to write this book was watching the lead up to the 2016 election and observing in a lot of the good evangelical churches, communities, and people who had raised me, something very strange. The same people who, when Bill Clinton had had his affair with Monica Lewinsky, were outraged and were talking Mm -hmm. about purity and fidelity and and all of these heavy virtue-laden words. They weren't outraged by the candidate Trump even when he used language that I don't want to repeat to talk about women, even, you know, when there were a number of moral issues about him, the way he talked about immigrants, the way he talked about people of color, the way he mocked a disabled reporter, all of these things were happening. And I expected these voices of my childhood who had cared so much about virtue and integrity and truth and faithfulness to speak out against. Trump's lack of ethics and morality, and they were quiet. Or Mm -hmm. in some cases, they were vigorously and loudly supporting him. Mm -hmm. And that was very difficult for me to watch. It led me to question, was there something missing in the way we talked about virtue when I was growing up? How is it possible for them to respond that way in the 90s and this way now? What has changed And then at the same time, I was asked to write a faculty essay for the alumni magazine at Taylor, and they said I could write it on any subject that I wanted. So Mm. I wrote about (laughs) hospitality and our Christian call to welcome those who are in need. And I wrote about the refugee crisis. This was when we had Syrian refugees washing up on the shores, you know. Right, yeah. And after I turned in the draft of that essay, I heard back from the editor. He wanted to take the word refugee out of my essay because he said the word refugee was too political. Hmm. And that just broke my heart. If Christians can't talk about refugees because that very subject is too political, something has gone terribly wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so those kinds of experiences were just kind of gathering in my heart and my soul. So after I wrote that essay about hospitality, I thought, I actually want to write like the essay that I want to write, not leaving out any words, not censoring anything. And so I wrote a longer and fuller piece about hospitality. And that ultimately became one of the chapters in this book. I think that was one of the first things. So I wrote that. And I also wrote this essay about well, about going to Branson for family vacations when I was a child. You're in Pennsylvania, so I don't know if yeah. you've heard of Branson, Missouri. I have, yeah. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm familiar a little bit, but our listeners might not be, so so share away. So Branson is, uh, it's the home of the theme park Silver Dollar City. It's a sort of a conservative bastion, and it's sort of 
melds kind of Christian culture with these a certain set of an idealized past and some values from that past in a really kitschy way. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wrote an essay about that, trying to figure out like, is there something in that how Christianity is commodified in the Branson experience that helps me understand what I see now politically? Mm-hmm. So I, I wrote those essays and was just sort of dealing internally with my own sadness I don't want to say despair, my own lament about what I was seeing in Christians in politics. And after I wrote the hospitality essay, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to do this with a bunch of virtues. And so that's what I did. I took some virtues and looked at how I understood them as a child growing up and then where I was seeing failure in the church today and maybe how we could reimagine those virtues in more expansive ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even in the intro, as I was saying to you earlier, there was just so much that felt important. You write about virtue. We love with, at best, an anemic understanding of virtue, an understanding of virtue that has gotten all tangled up with a political agenda, a set of quote unquote American values that aren't Christian, sentimental ideas about the good old days, and a tendency to believe some voices more than others. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by virtue, how you would define it, and how you see virtue playing a role in the life of the Christ follower? Yeah, I think I want to begin by saying that I'm actually a little wary of trying to define virtue or of giving a, a restrictive definition to what virtue is because, you know, the word virtue comes from the Latin word vir for man. And I think that etymology kind of points us to something about virtue and the way virtues have been used throughout history. Often throughout history, virtue has been defined by the most powerful voices, and Mm -hmm. they have often been men. They have often been white men. So I think that the idea of virtue has throughout history been weaponized sometimes. And so rather than offering a tight definition, I kind of like to complicate things. Nice. And (laughs) (laughs) that's always more fun, right? It is. It is. (laughs) So I guess I would say rather than seeing virtue as a weapon that keeps people behaving or in their places, I like to imagine virtue as a tool for cultivating wisdom. Hmm. And I think this is embodied goodness that goes beyond virtue signaling, trying to show that you're a good person who believes the right things and does the right things. It goes beyond that to embody, to really enflesh the fruits of the spirit as they're appropriate to our particular contexts and circumstances. And we need that, I mean, as much as ever, more than ever right now, that embodied goodness that isn't just fitting into a narrow box, but that is really attending to the particularities of our standpoints, our place in the world, why we have the perspectives that we have, listening to other voices, and then letting the Holy Spirit birth, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Yeah, so so I guess I can get a little carried away. <laughs> no, 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 I love it. I love it. As you noted, often in our culture, white men have been the ones to make decisions, I guess, about virtue or define virtue. 
you bring up gender throughout the book. And one of the sentences that caught my attention sort of related to this idea was women have a lot more painful questions for God, perhaps more than men have. And I wonder if you could say more about that sentence, what you mean by that and how you see gender shaping the questions that women have about spirituality or relationships with Jesus. Yeah. So in the book, I write about going to the Bahamas, taking some undergrads on a service learning trip. And off the coast of Nassau, we saw these sculptures of women who were staring off into the ocean. And our tour guide told us that they were there to remember the women whose families had been ripped apart due to slavery. Mm. And I thought about that. And I thought about a statue of a woman I saw in Nanjing, China, looking up to the sky after the rape of Nanjing. And then I thought, I just think you can see this so clearly in the art. Women have had a lot taken from us. Mm. And I think any group of people who have been on the margins, who have historically been oppressed, and you know, I'm a white straight woman. So I don't even identify with many of these oppressed categories. But as a woman, I think women have historically been on the underside of things. We haven't had the power. And for that reason, we've experienced suffering in ways that maybe powerful men have not. And that can lead to some questions. You know, I think about, for instance, Naomi Mm -hmm. in the Bible and how she said, Call me Mara because my life has been bitter right? She -hmm. knew suffering. She knew what it was like to be sort of powerless in this culture where if you don't have a man attached to you, what can you do? But because of that, her faith in God grew and she saw God work in amazing ways. She saw God's faithfulness. So I guess I think two things. Women, we have a lot of questions for God, because we've experienced some suffering that those in power have not experienced. We also have unique insight into God and God's word and God's ways because of that suffering. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the sad. (laughs) And part of that blessing, I mean, I think that's part of what we're called to do as Christians is to go to those margins so that we can see Jesus better. And men who've been in power are kind of missing a chance if they hold on to their power rather than moving towards the margins. They're missing a chance to really know God. Yeah. And that kind of leads into my next question. You bring up the virtue of modesty in one of the chapters and you unpack and reimagine a different way of seeing it. And I especially appreciated that dissection of the traditional view of modesty. You wrote about how that spills into other areas of a woman's life. And you said, the underlying assumptions of the modesty mindset bled into my life in ways unrelated to my clothing choices too. It was an easy, natural mental move from, I should cover up my body to protect men, to I should cover up my talents and gifts to protect men. I'm curious to hear just a little bit about that modesty mindset that you refer to and how that might impact women in academia. Oh, what a great question. Yeah. So in the chapter, I talk about how 
modesty has been weaponized against women, I think, because we've sort of in the church narrowly defined it as being about women's bodies and how much skin is showing and which clothes are appropriate. When actually, if you look in scripture, modesty has a lot more to do with your wealth and Mm -hmm. what you do with your wealth or other kinds of power. And so beauty is a kind of power and it's not totally inappropriate to speak about modesty as it relates to beauty. But what scripture is actually calling us to is something much more difficult than just attending to what kinds of clothes we're wearing. Scripture is calling us to be cognizant of the power that we have and then to leverage it on behalf of others or even to to let go of it on behalf of others. Basically, to not let any power that we have become a barrier to someone being able to come to Christ. So the scripture talks about don't wear braided hair or pearls to church. Right. Yeah. And what that's actually about is braided hair and pearls were status symbols um, showing that you were a woman who had extra time, extra money, and you could pay someone to fix your hair. And so that was like using your wealth to create distance between you and other people, using mm. the power of your wealth to create distance. So true modesty invites us to consider what kind of power we have, and then to consider if there are ways we're using that power to create distance, or if there are ways we're using that power to minimize distance and division. But I think another way that that's been sort of weaponized against women is they've said, recognize your power and hide it. Mm. So they haven't said, recognize your power and leverage it on behalf of those who need it. They've said, recognize your power and hide it so that you don't intimidate anybody. And I know this is real for women in academia. In fact, I I think it's in this chapter where I talk about a woman who had asked, I think her story was reported in The Guardian or something, and she was referred to as Mrs. And she asked them to correct it and use doctor, which was Mm -hmm. her, her academic title. And then there was this whole sort of like thing on Twitter with women adding their academic credentials And this is not as a way of showing off or distancing, you know, trying to be arrogant or proud. It's rather as a way of saying, this is work I've done and you will acknowledge men in this way, but not women in this way. So I'm going to use this title almost to make it easier for other women to also step into their power and to use it well. I don't know. I say it much better in the book. That's why I'm a writer, not a speaker, but... Particularly for women in academia who might be listening, a chapter on modesty alone is worth reading this book because it was so interesting to hear your perspective on the ways that we tend to minimize our gifts and talents and, as you said, hide them rather than step into them to bring other people closer. Yeah, it's not glorifying God to hide your talents that God has given you. Sure. Yeah, that sentence that I read earlier, it was an easy mental move from I should cover up my body to protect men to I should cover up my talents and gifts to protect men. Ah, anyway, yeah, <laughs> we do it yeah. so much. Hopefully we can even just begin to notice when we are doing that and kind of shift to a new mindset. Right. Have you read about this move? There's like a name for it, but people noticed that often like in a meeting where there were men and women, a woman would voice an idea and not get recognized for it. And then a few minutes later, a man would voice the same idea and get recognized for it. There's like a a name for this phenomenon. And so women started collaborating. So if they're in a meeting like that and a woman says something, another woman will follow up immediately to reinforce Yes. Um, Yeah. I don't know what it's called, but I was just (laughs) 
talking with, I work with women med students and we meet regularly to talk about different topics. And actually we're about to begin a series on virtues, kind of spawned by this book. Yeah. One of the students was like, let's talk about curiosity as a moral virtue. She sent me an article without any knowledge that I was in the midst of reading this book at the time. And I was like, oh, we're about to do a whole series now on virtues. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's lovely. But they were just talking about that because that happens for them all the time in med school. A woman will say something and then a man will say it and get the acknowledgement for it. So they were talking about working on like having another woman say, hey, or or even another guy say, hey, did you hear that so-and-so just said that? But yeah, there's a term for it. I didn't know there was a term. I think there is, but I don't know. It's a phenomenon. So yeah, like I just said, I've been meeting with med students and we've been talking about curiosity as a moral virtue. Your chapter on love, you write the sentence, love manifests as curiosity. I'm curious if you could say more about how you view that relationship between love and curiosity. Yeah. Well, I came to that conclusion kind of by first thinking about the way that growing up, I was taught that the most loving thing you can do, the best way to love your neighbor is to convert them to Christianity because then you can save them from hell and what could be more loving than that. And that led me to be sort of paralyzed and unable to make friends with people who weren't Christians because I always had in the back of my mind, like, how can I convert this person? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I can't really love them unless I can convert them. How can I convert them? And really kind of dehumanizing them, turning them into objects on my conversion checklist, right? (laughs) And so another word that we use when we're talking about conversion is witnessing. We witness Mm -hmm. to people, tell them our story so that they will be converted to our way of thinking. Well, I started thinking about what it means to be a witness. And what it means to be a witness is actually about being fully present to someone, to another human, in or or being fully present to the world in all of its complexity and pain. It's about really seeing someone. And if you really see someone, you don't just approach them thinking, how can I change their mind? You approach them with curiosity. You want to know everything about them. How can you see them if you don't approach them with curiosity? Mm-hmm. So I think about like my daughter Rosie is she loves Broadway musicals. And that love manifests as curiosity. I mean, she can wrap the entirety of Lin-Manuel Miranda's My Shot. She can nice. tell you who hosted the 2013 Tonys. I mean, right. she, she knows all kinds of arcane facts about Broadway musicals that I don't know because she loves them. Yeah. So she's curious about them. So she attends to them. I mean, it's also the way I felt about my husband when I was first falling in love with him. I wanted to know everything about him. So what if we take that kind of love and use it to help us frame what it means to love our neighbors? I think it really changes things. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And then if you think about 1 Corinthians 13, Mm. even thinking about curiosity paired with love in that passage, yeah, adds a whole nother way of looking at it. The other part of love that it's important to mention here is vulnerability. Sure. And when you think the best thing you can do to love your neighbor is to convert them to your way of thinking, 
it doesn't really require vulnerability from you. You are in kind of a higher position. I have the answers. I want to share them with you, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But Jesus gives us an understanding of love that is rooted in vulnerability. Jesus took on human flesh. Jesus became a baby. And I also look a lot to Mary. I mean, Mary's mm-hmm. Mary's love was rooted in being open and vulnerable to God and to God's plan for her life. So I, I think a lot about what motherhood can show me about love too. Motherhood must begin in being vulnerable. And then motherhood often means that you feel like your heart is running around outside your body. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned Trump earlier, right? And it feels a bit opposite when you think about vulnerability and love Mm. and curiosity, those three virtues. On the other hand, then, as you mentioned before about power and there's kind of an unwillingness to see people on the margins. Right. Well, and that's a big part of the argument for Christians to support Trump is like, he will give us power. People are afraid that they will Mm -hmm. lose religious freedom. I would love to know, because you do bring up Trump throughout the book, and particularly in the chapter on authenticity as a virtue, you raise a really interesting explanation for why evangelical Christians may have found Trump to be an attractive option for the presidency. And you wrote, white evangelical Americans, perhaps more than most, were primed to respond to just this sort of authenticity. The idea that spontaneous emotional reaction is more authentic than what is rehearsed sits at the heart of our spiritual traditions. Could you say more about this connection and this sort of priming to receive him as the best option? Absolutely. Yeah. And to be clear, I don't mean to say that authenticity or our understanding of authenticity provides the best explanation for why Christians voted en masse for Trump. I think that there are many reasons that self-identified white evangelicals voted en masse for Trump. And A lot of them have to do with fear, their desire to maintain their own place of cultural power. I mean, I think there there are lots of things going on there. But authenticity is a really interesting sort of curveball approach into this question, I guess. Mm -hmm. Because if you remember in 2016, there were a lot of people saying that what was attractive about Trump was he tells it like it is. He's not one of those normal politicians who will only tell you what you want to hear. He tells it like it is. He's not afraid to tell the truth, which is kind of hilarious because Trump lies at a rate that far exceeds the lies of any other politician, right? So to think of him as the authenticity candidate when he's lying so regularly and so wildly just made me think, how how is this possible? How, how are we seeing him as the authenticity candidate? And I found this super surprising sort of arcane answer, which is that most American evangelical traditions can trace their heritage back to this split that happened in the Church of England in the 1600s. And part of the split there was a group of church people who wanted to reform the church by getting rid of any pomp and circumstance, any ritual, any tradition. They literally wanted to get rid of wedding rings as like Mm. too much of a ritual. And so they also wanted to get rid of the Book of Common Prayer or liturgical prayers like that that are repeated because they said they weren't authentic. And so they advocated what was called free prayer, where you're just pouring out your heart to God in prayer. In fact, John Bunyan warned people against praying the Lord's Prayer. 
the prayer that Jesus taught us because he was worried that it was inauthentic. So they were very, very concerned about any kind of ritual or liturgy. And they deeply connected authentic faith with faith, which expressed itself in sort of this spontaneous overflow of emotion and words from your own heart. So what I see there is that white evangelicals kind of growing from that tradition are more likely than most people to connect spontaneous emotion to an idea of authenticity. And so maybe that's part of why we, they fell for Trump's shtick of authenticity is we already had this idea in our minds that, well, authenticity means speaking spontaneously. And, you know, you just have to question then, is authenticity such a virtue if what it reveals about you when you speak spontaneously is that you are a liar and a jerk to women and racist, you know? Yeah. So I think that that's a a really interesting sort of connection between the virtue of authenticity and our current political moment. Yeah. I found that part to be particularly interesting. And then also in that chapter, you show the flip side and write about how ritual or practice actually can help us be formed into who God has created us to be. And that you write authentic spiritual engagement does not need to be born of spontaneous emotional expressions. So I'm curious if you have any particular spiritual practices that you incorporate into your daily routine that you find help you grow in this virtue of authenticity. Yeah, I think it helps me, first of all, just to remember that authenticity does not mean being true to myself in some sort of like amorphous junior highway of like, this is just the real me. Rather, authenticity is recognizing the role that I've been given as a disciple and living into that role as fully as I can. And as I live into the role I've been given, I am more fully myself than I could be apart from living into that role. So first, just having that sort of mental shift really helps me. And then I think that helps you too. I mean, when you think about, oh, I don't want to sing this song at church because I'm not feeling it. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't always have to feel it. But praying this prayer or singing this song can still help form you into a person who may one day feel it, Mm. right? So for me, some practices right now, I pray morning prayer from the Book of Common Prayer with some friends here at Duke Divinity every morning. Every morning we gather either in person or over Zoom and pray morning prayer. And if people are interested in doing that, people who've never used the Book of Common Prayer, you can find the whole liturgy online and maybe we can put a link to that in show notes or something. Mm -hmm. And I also recorded a podcast recently that takes you step by step through that liturgy and tells you how to do it because the Book of Common Prayer can be a little bit tricky for people who aren't used to it. So Mm -hmm. we could link to that too if people want to give it a try. The other practice I think is I've been trying to incorporate more breath prayers or like the Jesus prayer. So the Jesus Mm -hmm. prayer is just Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I have some beads that I use and sometimes I will try to just sit in silence for a few minutes and pray that prayer like for each bead as I move my hands around the beads. And I find that that helps me enter into a a space mentally or spiritually, which is a space of peace. And then later throughout the day, when I'm in a moment where I need some peace or need to know how to respond to something in an instant, I can sort of find my way back into that space a little more easily if I've practiced it. Yeah, for sure. In the counseling world, which is the other world I live in, I'm a a Mm -hmm. counselor as well. 
we would call that like a grounding exercise. And essentially, if you were experiencing some sort of trauma trigger, you would be able Mm. to easily access that as well. So I love as you're talking about it, thinking about how to incorporate. And I'm speaking from a place where that's like evidence-based research, right? That Mm. this works. So kind of taking that grounding exercise of breath prayer or uh, praying with the beads, bringing you back to a place where you can reconnect with Jesus when you feel like you've been disconnected somehow. Yeah. I'm glad to know there's evidence for that. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, totally. Evidence-based research on all sorts of like sensory grounding techniques when you get dysregulated to be able to come back to a place where you're emotionally and more cognitively in a more rational space or regulated space through accessing different sensory items and building that association. Mm. And aren't we all a little more dysregulated than usual these days? Yes, indeed we are (laughs) kind of (laughs) living in a chronic state of dysregulation. Yeah. Hopefully not. One of the virtues that you end the book with is something we all are looking for a bit more these days. And you write about the virtue of hope. And I'm wondering where you are finding hope as well as how you cultivate hope as a virtue in your life. In the book, I talk about living through a very long and very difficult winter in Indiana when we had this one period where, you know, for two weeks, we didn't see the sun and the windshield temperatures were down to negative 40. And as someone who had grown up in San Antonio, it was particularly (laughs) difficult for me to live through a Midwestern winter especially one that was that hard. And in the middle of that winter, I got a seed catalog in the mail and I started pouring over these beautiful descriptions of seeds and planting from my spring garden. And I just remember it was so hard to even believe that spring was going to come Mm. at that point. But thinking about the garden and purchasing the seeds felt like ways of hoping, felt like ways of believing that spring would come. And so when I think about the virtue of hope for myself now, I think about that. I think hope is acting towards the belief that all things will be made new, towards the belief that God's kingdom will come here on earth, even when we can't see evidence of it. So for me, how do I cultivate hope? I really think to cultivate hope, we have to act even before we feel hopeful. So whenever I do act, then I find the feeling of hope following it. So in the last year, I've called my state representatives and my senators, something I had never done you know, before mm-hmm. the last few years. And doing that is a way of practicing hope because it's a way of acting as if you believe that things can change. I try all the time to incorporate small ways of getting plastics out of my life, especially single-use plastics. Mm -hmm. And I think that those little attempts are acts of hope that help me believe that even if this world is dying, I can still love it. And lately, you know, lately the thing I've been most concerned about is the prevalence of conspiracy theories and... QAnon on social media and seeing a lot of people who I trust and love sharing 
memes that are born out of QAnon and conspiracy theories, if not like directly related to them, still tangentially related to them. So one of the things I've been most concerned about is how can I how can I combat that fake news, that mm-hmm. conspiracy theory from infecting the church? And so another act of hope I've been trying to participate in is posting truth and good and beautiful things on social media. I mean, I would usually just rather leave Facebook and never go back. Sure. But I realized <laughs> that if I leave Facebook, I'm leaving sort of a vacuum for my friends and families. Facebook feeds to be filled more and more with Russian memes, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I've made like an intentional choice to go back to Facebook and start posting regularly, just in an attempt to try to get some goodness and truth and beauty into people's Facebook feeds to combat the lies and the conspiracy theories. And so I think that also is an act of hope. Mm, yeah. Speaking truth is a way of cultivating hope in hopes that things will change. Exactly. Yeah. And then finally, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Has there been a particular quote or scripture or song or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? And why does it resonate with you right now? It's such a lovely question. And I guess it's also a hope cultivating question, right? (laughs) By turning our eyes to (laughs) something true and good. Honestly, since March and the pandemic one song I've been coming back to a lot is the song Shiloh by Audrey Assad. Do you oh, know yes, it? I do. Like, yeah. Yeah. The chorus of that song says, may loving kindness calm the raging of the wound. May your healing be a clearing in the wood. May you breathe in deeper than you ever could before. And then she also talks about crying and admitting what you've lived through so you can grieve it. And One of the conclusions I came to in this book is that lament has to happen before we can hope well. So I love the way that this song lets us lament what has happened and recognizes that our lament can be a kind of cleansing, can be a kind of working the soil so that something new can grow. And yeah, so may your healing be a clearing in the wood and may you breathe in deeper than you ever could before. I mean, especially right now with COVID being so related to our breath, our ability to breathe, and also with the Black Lives Matter protests and mm-hmm. the call to remember those who died saying, I can't breathe. I think that line about may you breathe in deeper than you ever could before just is powerful on so many levels for me right now. It also made me think of the fires that are happening on the West Coast as well. Oh my gosh, yes. Not being able to go outside and breathe. Yeah, no one can breathe right now. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. What a prayer to end on. May you breathe in deeper than you ever could before. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Amy. It was a delight to talk with you and we will link to all the wonderful things that we mentioned throughout the podcast in the show notes so people can find those there. But yeah, thanks again, Amy, so much for your time and for having a rich conversation with us today. Yeah, it was a delight and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. 
This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.